recorded live. All right, very good. Well, welcome to class tonight, Tech 544. This is the winter quarter 2015, and we are going to be talking tonight about the final project, the Pythagorean theorem uh, development project. A couple of things, housekeeping. <clears throat> I made a couple of small changes to the documentation that goes along with this week. The, there is a, a template file, a Word file, that I'm going to ask you to use to generate your analysis report. made a couple of small changes to the first part of that based on the class that I had with the face-to-face -face group in 544 on Tuesday. So if you've downloaded that, you might want to re-download it because it clarifies a couple of small things. Um, next, what we're going to be doing is you're transitioning from learning about instructional design to doing instructional design. We, in this last week, did what I call an analysis plan. And as I explained, and I, I will explain it again, the analysis plan is a little artificial. It's not something that you would normally do in a project of this small size. An analysis plan is something that you would really only do in a really big project, you know, the, a project where you had many people who were going to be involved with it, uh, such that you might actually split the analysis tasks between several teams so that one team might go out and do interviews, another team might go out and do research in the literature base, and another team might go out and search for documents that would provide information. So in a small-scale project like this, you wouldn't really do an analysis plan. Um, I think of it as a teaching tool because one of the challenges of learning instructional design, teaching instructional design, is getting you to stop the natural tendency that we have as humans to jump right into the fun part or to the, the, to the solution. I mean, most of us know enough about math and enough about developing in PowerPoint and enough about teaching, we could sit down and in a couple of hours we could whip together a presentation on this topic. And that's our natural inclination. But that's not how we do it in an instructional design process because in the instructional design process, you are doing a systematic process that is verifiable, repeatable, and that you can use in situations where you don't know enough about the topic. So I'm using these tool, even though they're a little artificial, to try to stop that natural tendency to jump right into the development. The, the same thing, I guess, is true of this next step, which is the analysis report. Again, in a small-scale like project like this, you wouldn't write an analysis report because you're one individual. You can keep everything you need in your head uh, about this project. An analysis report or documentation of this type would really only be used in a big project where the people who had done the analysis might not necessarily be the same people who were going to do the design of the project, or maybe some of them would. But the analysis report is, the purpose of the analysis report is to try to capture in a tangible form your construction of the project as it exists in its early, early form in the analysis. You know, you're trying to determine who you're going to be developing for, what their characteristics are, what their needs are. You're trying to figure out what you're going to be teaching. You know, what exactly is it that we're going to be teaching? What are the objectives um, and so on? And then, of course, how we're going to know that we've done it. And there, as we've talked about in this class, there are different ways of going about this. One are people methods. You do surveys, focus groups, interviews, and so on with people. Next is what I call document recovery. That's where you examine in place any documentation, which would include videos or anything, that gives you ideas about how to teach it, what's already been taught, and so on. And then there's the literature method, where we go into uh, scholarly literature to try to bring some information from current research into our development project. So what we're doing tonight is we're going to be doing part of the analysis where you're going to start implementing your analysis plan. The end result at the end of this week is you're going to create or complete the analysis report, which then leads us into the next phase of the process, which is design. Any questions so far? No. Uh, I think I'm clear. <laughs> All right, very good. So just a couple of 
hints or notes on the project itself. The project is to create a presentation about the Pythagorean theorem. The basic requirements are that you're going to produce things along the way that step you towards completion of this project. So along the way, you're going to do things like create descriptions for graphics that you will eventually produce. Speaking of graphics, all graphics that you use in this presentation must be created by you, with the exception of if you decide to go this direction. Uh, you can use a stock picture of Pythagoras or Greek columns or something, um, just in a history of the theorem kind of thing. If you want to, you do have to make uh, sure that you're indicating the copyright ownership at the source where you use it. But otherwise, you're going to have to describe the graphics you're going to use, and then you're going to have to create them. You'll be creating a transcript, which is basically a text file of all of the words that appear on the screen, or if you choose to do narration, that narration. If you do use narration, the substantive information that you provide in that audio channel has to be replicated in text on the screen for ADA purposes. Um, the presentation should be fairly short. It's not, it doesn't have to be extensive. You don't have to cover every aspect of the Pythagorean theorem. You know, obviously, we're not actually producing a, a learning artifact here. We're, we're using this as a teaching tool. Uh, so we'll, we'll kind of keep to the simplified version of Pythagorean theorem, the, the 3, 4, 5 right triangle model that is often used in, in teaching it. Uh, I encourage those of you who have good technology skills to go beyond just creating a slideshow in PowerPoint. You will create a, a slideshow in PowerPoint or Keynote. But uh, if you have the technology skills, push yourself a little bit more. Go ahead and turn it into a video with audio narration um, just to make sure that you're continuing to improve your, your skills and impressing the teacher. Any questions about that? Uh, I have a question. Um, so are we required to actually present the, the project uh, in, a, in a synchronous setting? No, or, no. We're just, we're just going to be responsible for delivering the, the project digitally. Right. You'll, you'll post the project on your portfolio. Okay. Anything else? Okay. I was wondering, I mean, did you, were you okay with a combination of things, you know, like graphs, static charts, and things like that, and, and uh, the creation of those things? Um, or did you want, if you could, if you did a video, do, could you incorporate all of that into the video itself and not actually have to, to uh, create all that separate uh, documentation to turn in later? I I, I was having a little trouble understanding. You were breaking up a little bit. Um, let me try to see if I captured it. So you're asking that if you do a video, do you still need to create graphics that would be used in the video? Well, I mean, like, did you want those graphics to be static in inside like a, a development project as well? Things like that. I mean, did you? Did if you, you go from, okay? If I'm understanding your question, then if you're going to go and, and create a video product that might capture images that are not necessarily those that you create on the computer and then edit in, but rather you're going to use a live video model, that's fine. Uh, what you'll do is your PowerPoint will serve as the storyboard where your PowerPoint will provide uh, mostly textual descriptions of what you're going to place in the major frames of the video. Okay. All right. Yeah, I, I think I've got that. I just, I'm brainstorming trying to come up with the types of content that I would want to put in to this, this program and whether or not I wanted to display that in a video or not. But hmm. yeah, <laughs> it's, a lot, it's a lot to come up with if you... <laughs> All right. So. All right. So another purpose of the synchronous session tonight is I do want to give you some sense of being able to implement your analysis plan. So what I'll do then is I will serve 
to answer your questions as if I were a math teacher you were consulting, if you have any questions that you would ask a math teacher. And I will also serve as what I consider to be the funding agent, the person who's commissioning this project. So if you have any questions that you would like to ask that person to help you shape the project, uh, tonight's session is what that is about. So if you would, just take turns and ask questions. It's all right if you decide to ask a question that isn't in your analysis plan. Your analysis plan is the starting point. As soon as you ask the first question, the answer will often give you ideas that you weren't even capable of thinking of when you created your initial plan. And that's, that's part of the process. Okay. Um, I, so I guess this is sort of a meta question, but for every student that's going to be producing this analysis plan, is is the context going to be the same for, I guess this is kind of a meta question, is the method of delivery and the classroom setting, or all those things are going to be the same for every student, right? Yes. Okay. So, so those things are already established and we can ask you about those things. That's correct. Okay. Okay. Great. I think I understand the process. Um, I guess so. I guess the first question is going to be: um, uh, Is this a face-to-face -face class, or how? how uh, what is the method of delivery for the the class? All right. Um, so that would be a question that you would ask of your funding agent. You know, why are we doing this? You know, what what's in this? Now, in the real world, you would probably get uh, requests for proposals, which would have at least a a brief outline of what the project was about. I chose not to do that because I didn't want to reveal too much until we got to this. I wanted to get you to ask questions of the person who's funding this. So if you were to ask the funding agent, what's this all about, here's what I would tell you. Um, we're developing a website, and this website is, is designed as a kind of a teaching resource. It's if you just want a brief thing, it's like everything I was supposed to learn in school but didn't. We want to make it energetic and interesting and uh, and useful to a wide range of people. So it's it's designed to be like uh, the YouTube of learning, if you want to think of it that, that way. Okay. So this is primarily a, this is primarily like a it's going to be a video library. Uh, of of a, a knowledge database, but primarily consisting of videos. Yeah, exactly. So the website, when it's done, is going to be a knowledge base. I like that term of uh, learning videos uh, for people to use independently. There won't be any teachers. I suppose a teacher could use them in their classes if they want to, but we're not going to provide a face-to-face -face teacher. These this is just going to be um, videos, slideshows, and, and such. For people to use. Do you recommend having, um, in between the videos, having uh, like a, a quiz or a survey or something to to assess the students on each individual block, or or would you would you recommend just one large um, assessment at the end to find out if they've got proof of? Right. So that that's a great question. You want to know how are we going to know that we've actually taught someone about the Pythagorean theorem? And, and here's how I'd answer this. In part, what you're doing is you're creating an example for us to look at and to test. You know, we want to we want to get some ideas on what works best. Now, if you're asking me, what I'm thinking is people are going to come to our site to learn something. They want to be made aware of whether or not they've learned it. But they don't want to take a test. So what I'm thinking is going to be useful is after you present uh, some information, just think about doing a self-check. So pose a question, tell them if you need a minute, pause the video, solve the problem or answer it, and then restart, and then provide the answer for them. That way, if they feel confident, they can just continue on. They don't need to stop. If they're wanting to stop and reflect, that's up to them. But we don't want to take up a lot of time doing it, and I don't want them to leave the video. So we're not going to have a separate um, testing mechanism at this point. Everything has to be self-contained in that video. Uh, Mike, so I, you may have just answered this question, but I was just going to ask, are there going to be any supplementary materials on the page other than the video, or does the video encapsulate all of the learning that's going to take place on uh, in, in, a, in a given session? The video is it. Okay. 
Is there any opportunity for student-student interaction on uh, maybe a comment board or a discussion beneath? We're certainly planning that, but that will be outside the scope of the video. You know, we've got a whole social media team that's going to be working on that. Um, it's going to include rating systems and things like that, but you don't have to worry about it because you don't have to program that. Uh, that'll be all handled on the back end through our databases and our technicians. Um, so we have access to a math instructor. Um, I, I don't have any experience teaching math. Um, can you tell me some, I guess, common ways of teaching math that maybe uh, someone who doesn't teach math might, <laughs> might should know? Yeah, you know, um, the method that I prefer is I do, we do, you do. Um, but that's not always possible in a static video. In this methodology, I provide a demonstration of the, the mathematical problem, the solution, and so on. And one of the things that I like to do is I externalize the thinking process that someone who's proficient in solving the type of problem does. You know, first, you, know, you externalize what you say. First, I'm going to do this. I'm going to set up my problem. It's really important to write out the entire equation and then to do it step by step. Uh, and then after I run through at least one problem, I, I poll to see what my learners are doing. Obviously, you're not going to be able to do that. Uh, but then the next step in my major preferred teaching method is then to say, okay, now I've shown you how to do this. Now let's set up another problem and you help guide me through the process. So I would take ideas from uh, my students to work through the same problem. So I ask them to guide me. That lets me check their understanding. It also lets me shape the way they use the vocabulary and think. Finally, I have them do problems independently. So it's I do, we do, you do. Now, when we're translating this into a very um, impersonal teaching mode like a video, you probably can't do all of that. Instead, I would recommend that you present the information in at least one way, two ways might be better. Then do a guided practice where you ask them, what do you think is next? And then give them the answer to shape their, their thinking along the way. That allows them to back up and repeat if they need to. Provide lots of explanation about what goes on, but not so dense that you add additional complexity to the problem. Um, other principles you might want to think of is you want to use simple examples first and add complexity later on. Um, let's see. You're lucky you're dealing with something that is pretty procedural. You know, it's a simple algebraic equation, um, and, and so on. Any other questions about that? trying to put together how I would have learned, <laughs> like to have learned math back when I was doing it. Um, how, do you recommend any uh, changes in, like you said, procedural? Um, if you were to start maybe at the end result and kind of pick things apart later and, and go backwards, uh, do you recommend that as being a, an effective teaching method for, for this type of formula? Mm -hmm. Not normally. Now, when you're teaching Pythagorean, there's, there's another way that we sometimes introduce this, and that's through the concept of area. You know, in basic geometry, you know that when you square the sides of a rectangle, you get the area of that rectangle, right? Right. Well, one of the ways that we illustrate the Pythagorean theorem uh, in a geometrical way rather than an algebraic way, and this only works for right triangles that follow the three, four, five pattern. And if you're not familiar with it, in the Pythagorean theorem, um, right triangles that have sides that are proportioned three, four, and five uh, will always work out evenly and then make a nice illustration in this way. So in, in this geometrical model, as I call it, what you do is you draw boxes on each leg of the triangle and the hypotenuse. Those rectangles then are divided into cubes or into additional boxes equal to the unit of the side. So let's say that you have 
a right triangle that has uh, four, a unit of four, a unit of three, and a unit of five. On this leg that has a unit of four, you'll draw a box with four by four grids. So you'll have you know the, the 16 boxes in there. The, the side that has the three, you'll draw the three by three or a nine box box or a box with nine smaller subdivisions of boxes in it. And of course, the five is going to have a, a box with each side having five units. You divide each of those into boxes and you get 25. This is a great way of, of providing another way to show students that you know the square isn't something you have to be worried about. That square root thing sometimes scares people. But by illustrating it through the, the method of drawing a box on each leg, it makes it possible to count the numbers rather than have to do the square root math. Uh, and it makes it a lot easier, and it's visual. Um, how is a how would a self check work? The way I see a self check working in this kind of scenario would be you would say, okay, now that we've run through the problem several times, let's set up a problem, and I want you to solve it step by step with me. So you would start by probably presenting them a right triangle with the known two legs. The sides of two legs would be given. The hypotenuse would not be given. You would then set up the algebra equation, you know, a squared plus b squared equals c squared, c being the hypotenuse. Then you say, okay, now, what is the value of a? Pause for a second. And then present a equals whatever the unit is you chose to, to make the one leg. What is the unit of e? Pause for a second, and then present the unit. So basically what you're doing is you're plugging the numbers from your illustration into the algebraic equation, pausing to give them a chance to predict it. Then you're going to say, okay, what's our next step? Well, the next step, of course, is to plug and chug, as we used to say in the math teaching game. You do the math. So let's say you're, again, let's stick with the, the 3, 4, 5. A equals 3, so then you do the math. 3 squared. 3 squared is 9. You ask them, what's 3 times 3 or 3 squared? Write it down. So what you would do is you would present the solution after asking them to provide the answer first. That would be one level of self-check. Another level of self-check would be to set up a problem and then say, pause, solve the problem. And then after you know, a couple of seconds giving them a chance to pause the video, you might then step through the solution, boom, 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 so that they can check their, their math and their uh, ability to produce the, the correct sequence of steps um, in that self-check. Um, this might be a, a question for the math instructor, but um, if this were to be delivered in a video format, what would be, uh -huh. uh, what would be the uh, average duration or a good duration so that we ensure learning, but also so that we don't just spend way too much time covering the, the information? Um, probably that would be a question you might want to ask the, the guy whose video your, you know, the website you're creating, because they may have some ideas about that. As far as being a math teacher, it needs to be as long as it needs to be. Now, on, as far as being the funding agent, I would say I would keep the video short. Five minutes would be about absolute maximum that I would want to see something like this, and that's just based on our research that shows us that people don't like to read on the web, and they don't like long, long videos when they're looking for a specific, you know, learning tidbit. They don't, they don't want a lot of information. They want just the information they're looking for, and our website is going to have we're going to feature short videos and a lot of them so that they can find just the one that they need to do. So, for example, 
in a problem like this, there's algebra involved, right? Well, you might be tempted to try to teach people about basic algebra in this, but that isn't what I would recommend. Instead, we'll have an algebra video that they can watch to learn more about that. Same thing for like the idea of what's, you know, how do we square numbers. Assume that they either know it or else they can learn that elsewhere and really focus very tightly on just to teach this principle, this, this, uh, this mathematical formula, the theorem. Um, your, so that just explanation kind of gave me a couple of other ideas. Is this website live yet? No. Are there other candidates being interviewed to produce other videos? Or are we in competition oh, yeah, with yeah. other? Yeah, like I so said, we're, we're just at the beginning stage, and what we're doing now is we've solicited a large number of instructional designers to produce videos across a number of range of content, our context, so that we can get some ideas. And what we're going to ultimately do is we're looking for the best ideas, and when we find a model that we really like, we'll replicate it. Gotcha. So what the, the purpose of this project is like a, it's to be a template for other kinds of instructional videos that are basically going to use the same form to teach other kinds of content. And the purpose of this project is going to be one of the assets would be for the, for the business that's collecting these videos is going to be its replicability. Yes. Okay. I think that helps me kind of uh, think about my decision making for the project. So thank you. Mm -hmm. What other questions might you have? Um, should we should we explore how many different ways of solving this do you think we should include? I mean, you said one and two is even better. Um, should we be looking for like novel approaches to teaching this? Maybe like newer ways of teaching it, or can we just sort of? And this may be a, a poorly formed question, but uh, are you looking for the structure of the class? Um, two ways would be good, if you can illustrate it two ways. Um, as far as novel ways, I know I don't know of any novel ways of teaching this. Uh, admittedly, I haven't been a math teacher for more than 10 years now, but back when I was teaching math, there were really the two ways to present it that seemed to work pretty well. If you find a, a novel way that you think you can use, feel free to do it. But uh, you know, for the purpose of this class, what I'm really looking for is I'm looking for how you solve the instructional design problem more than how creative you are on solving Pythagorean theorem. Understood. Yeah, I have no baseline, so my I'm going to pull from my experience with working with technology on on that side of things. So I'll probably go with I have a sister-in-law who teaches math, so I'm going to ask her a lot of questions about. <laughs> what she uses for that kind of thing. Never a bad idea to find a subject matter expert. I yeah. use them to help you not only to learn more about it as you're designing, but after you design something, run it by your subject matter expert and ask them now, is this correct? Is, is this something that you as an expert think would actually serve to teach this? Right. Yeah, because I, I, won't, I won't know you know, unless I have somebody that can actually verify that they would or wouldn't use it or what parts of it they would use, what parts of it they wouldn't, you know, or you know, what ideas they have that are sparked by what I've created to say, oh, this would be great if you could just do this. Yeah. And see, that's exactly what an instructional designer does. Yeah. And one of the reasons that I, I chose this task is because it is a task that most of us have some familiarity with, but not um, expertise in, unless we've been math teachers. So it, it causes us to think, how can I learn more about this, or how can I test the assumptions that I'm making uh, about this principle as I'm going through the analysis? What other questions do you have? So you 
Okay, here, uh, don't use too much text, but anything that's spoken must also be visible as text on screen. Okay, so you you don't want a lot of text on on the site itself that we're going to create, um, but in the in the videos themselves, they all have to be captioned. That's correct, and that comes. And this would be a question that you would ask to your funding agent. Yeah, this would come from our research. Our research search says people don't read on the web. They want video, but um, because of ADA requirements, anything that is presented in an audio form must also be in a text form on the on the screen. All right. I'm just I'm thinking of the difficulty in trying to put math equations into text on the captioning portion and. You know, to act to accurately, you know, dis display verbally, you know, in that textual context, you know, how you're going to actually say, you know, this square root of this, and you know, the the, the formulas themselves. Because well, I, most of the time, and this I'll, I'll say this as the instructor of the class, what you'll do is you'll present formulas as graphics rather than as text. Right. And when you say square root, you'll write out the word square root. Okay. Yeah, I guess that'll work. Yeah. One question that you haven't asked, I, I, I apologize, this kind of um, interview thing, the more people you have, the better, because you get ideas and, and more people can jump in. One question that you haven't asked that you might want to ask is, what kind of reading level might we assume, or you know, more characteristics about the the potential learners? I was gonna, yeah, I was gonna ask about that a little bit. I I'm reading through the analysis report template, and a lot of the information was there. I was staying away from questions about the students because it seemed like there was a lot of information in the document. Yeah, yeah normally I don't reveal that until after the interview. <laughs> yes, yeah, so um, sixth grade reading level. Yeah, uh, you can, you can, and, and that comes from the fact that most of the time this kind of thing is taught around junior high. So we're we're also seeing that most of the uh, the surveys and reading tests show that the American population has about a seventh to eighth grade reading proficiency. So we want to keep it about that level. You said that the, the website is targeted toward a wide range of people. When you yep. when you talk about the research that you keep referring to, what what is the what what people are you researching? What's the what is that group made up of? I'm I'm making most of that up completely, just out of my own background knowledge. Okay. But they're that they're users, presumably they're users of the site or targeted users of the site. Exactly. If you were launching a website like this. You would have market research, and you would have a uh, an identified user base that you would have done research about to find out what their characteristics and preferences are. And, and in this case, there it, you just said that it's a wide range of, but it's adults. Right, most of it, most of them are going to be adults. So you can you can kind of make that assumption, although you know, junior high kid might get on here if they were doing the homework. Uh, so the students uh, are. I see on here. Um, there's some background information on um, background information on Pythagoras. So, as as a math instructor, is it is it helpful for people to add context just to know a little bit of the history of uh, of the the person, the man? How important is that? You know, as a math teacher, I'm not sure how important it is. It's something that we usually include. Uh, as the instructor of your class, I would say uh, you might think about how this would fit into what the Keller's Arts model would suggest in terms of helping people feel confident about their learning. You know, that might be a way to uh, give them an inquiry, you know, some questions about it, or it might be a way to uh, get them in that uh, surprise mode of uh, gaining their attention. So you you were saying like that would tie in the rational 
the rational thinking of you know people to to say you know there's a reason for us to learn this. This is why this person came up with with this theorem, and this is what it was used for initially. Yeah, yeah exactly. To try to put it into context for them. Right. Okay. And the other thing that you some you touched on there is it's not necessarily a bad idea to give people some idea of how this is used in the real world if you can come up with some examples of that. Right. Even if it yep. was in a, like a portion of it, you know, let's say that you know it was used to launch rockets or something, you know, there's if there's some tie in there, you know, to say this is similar to this event that recently happened. Uh, with that. that would be great. Mm -hmm. um, you talked about uh, user satisfaction and how it, it seemed like from the research that users were more satisfied when they were presented with video and audio. Do you have any more? Do you have any more detail to add about other factors that may affect user satisfaction? Um. You know, the pacing can't be too slow. If if you bore the learner, they click off. But yet it can't be too complicated either. You really have to find that balancing point between uh, a quick, energetic, lively pace, but not trying to uh, jump steps or to present too much information too quickly. Basic graphics are, are nice. Uh, just all text isn't uh, what users seem to prefer. They, they do want pictures along with words. Uh, timing is important so that you know the picture needs to be um, in line with what they're hearing or what they're reading on the screen. I guess uh, learning research also shows that to be the case. What else? Um, what are some, let's see, what are some potential barriers to the learning process that we may encounter that we're, we may not be anticipating? Um, and I'm asking the math teacher in this uh, question. Well, as a math teacher, I'd say a lot of times the uh, the square root is a barrier. And for that reason, on this day, I would stick to using only numbers that had natural square roots. So you don't have to use a calculator, and you don't have to worry about decimal numbers in your answers. Okay, that's very helpful. Well, let me go oh, ahead. Can you recommend any online uh, books or or resources or anything that any like websites? That Great question. You know, I don't know of a source for this, but if you can find a copy of that old Disney movie, Donald Duck in Mathematics Land you would see some interesting ways to uh, talk about Pythagoras. I remember that video where he's playing pool. He's teaching yeah. geometry. Yes. Yeah, wonderful old video, old movie. Probably done in the 50s or 60s originally. Um, this might be a question for Dr. Newberry as a person, um, as a professor. But how how would we go about document recovery in this kind of context? We don't, we, we don't really have access to learner records. Is that correct? That's correct. And and now why don't we go ahead and talk about this next phase, which is producing the analysis report. So you created the analysis plan. And in that plan, you may have done 
two common things. One is you will say, I'm going to use this method for analysis that you can't actually do. It's just not feasible or possible. Or you may not have had quite enough detail, and one of those things might be something like document recovery. Document recovery, um, okay, let me step back one other step, and that is in the analysis report that you've done, I have already completed the who section. So in, in the analysis report, it's structured as who, what, and how, and then I expect you to you know, follow the template that I've provided there. I've already completed the who section, so you're not, you don't have to do that part. You use that as a pattern to help you complete the other two sections. So in terms of document recovery for something like this, that would be to examine a textbook, to examine a website that teaches the same principle, to watch a, another video that teaches the same thing. Those would be the documents that would be feasible to recover for a project like this. Anything else? So, um, as far as uh, so that was like part of the process of it. Um, we're not really getting into the analysis or the assessment to find out if it was actually successful. Um, do you, is there any? Do you have any recommend recommended methods for that? Or right in this project, in, in order to make it simple enough to accomplish. In the time that you have, the assessment that you're going to be used, the evaluation for uh, student learning is just a self check. So, this is uh, a little unusual because you're not going to be able to gather the performance of your students using your video. It's, going, it's only going to be a self check in this case. And that's just to simplify the project so that we can do it along with everything else we have to do in this class in the short time that we have available. Right. Okay. In the analysis plan that we submitted last week, we were asked to basically choose three people methods and three document recovery methods and three literature-based methods. We're, we're now just using that information and choosing some methods, some exact methods for this particular project. Is that correct? We're not, we're not expected to use at all of the all of the possible. Remember, in, in instructional design, everything changes as you do it. And that's one of the hard things to get across. So the analysis plan that you created is a marker in time that represents your best understanding of the project at that time. As your understanding matures, changes, or improves, you're, you're going to be able to look at that analysis plan and say, oh, that's stupid. That one, no way I can do that. But I should include this one. So right. that plan is changing all the time. So you're correct. Now it's time for you to implement your analysis plan, and part of that implementation is to modify it to make it more effective. So you eliminate the, the, the stuff that is unrealistic or is no longer needed, and you supplement it with new ideas as you get them. So the, this project that we're working on this week, is it's really the same the purpose of the document is exactly the same. It's just a more honed, more experienced, and more, you know, we're, we're, we have more knowledge now to be able to fill in that. But, but the documents really are, they serve the same purpose. I just know more now. That's one way of thinking about it, yes. Okay. And what you're doing is producing this week is essentially you're trying to produce the result of the analysis. And one of the things that this tries to teach you is that analysis doesn't just come from your head. One of the mistakes that I see beginning instructional designers doing is when you say, okay, do an analysis and explain what your analysis is, instead of saying, okay, here's how I approach analysis. I look for people methods, I look for document recovery methods, I look for literature-based methods. I try to define the area, I try to understand. Instead, people will start writing down, okay, what are the characteristics? We can make these assumptions. And, and they, they aren't able to explain where they get those assumptions other than they came out of their head. 
which mm-hmm. works great in most situations unless you're working in an area where you have no background knowledge or it's a very large project where you have to document everything very carefully so that people who are uh, reviewing your progress and your process understand and agree with what you say you're doing. You can't just say, here's the results, and they'll say, but how did you get these? You know, what was your process? How do I know this just isn't made up? So the analysis document that is due at the end of the week is uh, essentially for you to write down now what you know about who, what, and how as you complete the analysis. So you're, you're now charged with doing whatever it is that you need to do in terms of document recovery, any additional people methods, and of course the literature methods to find out more about the what and the how. What are you teaching? In other words, what are the objectives that you can set now? that you're doing the analysis, what, it, what are the key components of this theorem that you're going to teach, and then how are you going to be able to structure the self-test? Because now that you know that you, know, you can't really do a formal assessment, it's a self-check, what are the components of that, and what is it you can realistically check for? That's what you have to produce in this document. And the very last thing in that document is kind of like, now we start coming up with some guides or some rules. One of the things that I always try to teach is that design is creation under constraint. And what we're doing in this instructional design process, in the analysis, we're beginning to develop the constraint that are the boundaries for this project that kind of set out what it is we're trying to do. And again, like I said, you wouldn't normally create a document to do that. It's a kind of artificial in a small project like this. But it gets you to think about them uh, and externalize them so that as you begin creating the project, you just don't jump right into developing the PowerPoint right now, but you, you're slowing it down and you're forcing yourself to think like an instructional designer, even though I understand that in a small project like this, it doesn't make sense to go to these excruciating steps and details um, to do something that's so simple. Any other questions? Can, can this kind of evolve as we go? Like, if I am I going to be held to what I write on this for this this week? Instructional design it always changes as you learn more. So the analysis represents the, the analysis report represents your best understanding of the project as it is right now. Now, keep in mind. Now, after we're done with analysis, we enter design. In design, you begin coming up with the idea for how to present the information to service the who, what, and how. One element of that design process is you come up with something that's semi-tangible, and then you test it. You put it in front of someone and say, what if, you know, imagine this was a video and it was structured like this. What works and what doesn't? Well, you're really back into a point where you're going to make modifications even to your basic assumptions that you're forming right now because everything you do gives you more information upon which to base a judgment. Right. I guess that was a long way of saying, no, you're not really held to <laughs> what you write in the analysis report because your understanding is going to be further refined by the next step in the process. And that's another reason why I say, even though we teach instructional design as this kind of linear process, it's not. In the real world, instructional design is very cyclical, and you're always churning your understanding, refining your assumptions, refining your understanding about who and what and how throughout the entire project. And do you recommend getting that from multiple sources? Like, do you have a kind of a percentage that you live by when you say you get, um, you know, your feedback and you're continuously kind of evolving your program? 
do you put a lot of weight on the feedback you get from the students or the feedback you get from the administration or or yourself? I mean, what is it that you put most of your or does it depend on it really depends. The in general, the bigger the project, the more sources of uh, feedback and testing that you need, and the more frequent that you need to have that. In a small scale project, you know, you're a teacher working in your classroom. You do instructional design subconsciously all the time, and really, your only sources of testing would be yourself, and then during implementation. Well, in a project like this, you're going to want to formalize that a little bit. When you create your design, you'll do a level of test. And if you're smart, you'll have a peer or somebody else also look over your design and give you some feedback, which you should record, and then make decisions about. One of the uh, a trick or a thing about instructional design that you learn over time is not every opinion is um, worth making changes for. And part of being a good instructional designer is knowing when you're getting good feedback and when you're not. Sometimes you'll get feedback that tells you something, but it may not be good, and if you're not sure, that often means you need to do another kind of test in order to triangulate whether or not this is a real valid concern or if it's just an idiosyncrasy of the person that was doing the test. Uh, in general, in the program, I like to see two kinds of tests. I like to see, well, other than yourself, you're always one level, but uh, and when we're doing a, a project like this, I always like to see um, a test done with a professional of some sort, like a subject matter expert, just a, a sanity check. Does this seem like it would be something that would teach this, that something that you know about? And then I like to see a test that simulates actual use. Now, this doesn't mean you know if you're working, you're creating something for students that you actually have to put it in front of students. Adults can use your product as if they were students, you know, your direction to them is, I want you to use this as if you were a 13-year-old student. What are some things that a 13-year-old might do with this that I'm not predicting? Um, and would a 13-year-old be able to comprehend these kinds of things? I feel like I have a good understanding of the analysis report now, so I, I don't think I have any more questions. Great. That, that's what this project is all about, or this uh, class meeting is all about. It's just to get you to that next level, to get you to the point where you think, okay, I think I can write some stuff down in this analysis report that moves my thinking one notch further. And if nobody has any other questions, we can end the session then. I have no more questions. I I, I think I've got pretty good direction on where I'm going to go with each one of these concepts. So. Very good. And of course, you know, after I read it, I'll I'll give you an evaluation on it. If there's something that I think you really missed, I'll let you know. <clears throat> you can always make modifications as needed. Great. Well, uh, that sounds good. Thank you very much for your time. All right, thank you for joining me. I'm going to end the recording now, and this recording will be here for those in the class who weren't able to make it to this live session. Hopefully they can learn what they need from it in order to complete the analysis report.